You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you take your Bible and turn to Genesis, Genesis chapter 11, we'll be We'll start in verse 27, and we're going to read through chapter 12, verse 9. Genesis, starting in chapter 11, verse 27. So today we begin a new series, uh, providentially a week later than I had planned, uh, since I was sidelined last week, uh, being sick, but uh, grateful to be able to uh, be here now and, and start this series um, this series that is not a, a book series per se, as we usually go through, as uh, we're going to, though, be in one book, we're going to stay in Genesis here, um, but we're going to focus in on the life of Abraham. Abraham is known as the father of faith, uh, because what we read about him in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which says, and he believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. And so we begin this series as we are, are then planning on starting a, a series of the book, book of Romans come the fall. And there in the book of Romans, Paul teaches and defends and thoroughly goes over the doctrine of justification by faith. That teaching that we are credited with righteousness by faith. Because in of ourselves, we are sinners. In of ourselves, we've broken God's law. Each time we have failed to put God first in our lives, to give him the place of, of importance and, and the, the enthroned on our affections. Uh, each time we failed to do that and put other things in the place of God in our lives, uh, we have broken his law. Each time we have taken his name in vain to use his name uh, to express excitement or anger, or, or we've just made it like any other word, or, or worse, we've made it like a four-letter word. We've, we've taken the name of the holy God and dragged it through the mud. We have taken his name in vain. We have broken his law. We are sinners. And each time we have taken anything that did not belong to us, or any time we have uh, desired and longed for things that we had no rights to, and we're ungrateful for what we have, we have shown ourselves to be sinners before the holy God. We've shown ourselves to be lawbreakers. And we're not just sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners in our first father, Adam. And since the fall of Adam back in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan attempted to overthrow God's kingdom purposes, tempting Eve and to eat of the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil and, and her giving to Adam, ever since then, God has been revealing his eternal plan that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, And even when that promise looked bleak, when Cain killed Abel, uh, God really just revealed his plan all the more to make it all the more clear that that this promised seed would come through Adam and Eve's son, Seth. And from Seth, God chose Enosh. And down through Enosh's line, God chose Methuselah. And even when man's sin increased in the world, God chose Noah and preserved the seed by preserving Noah through the global flood. 
And from Noah, God chose his son, Shem. And through his line chose Eber, down all the way to Terah. And of Terah's sons, God chose Abram, or Abraham, through whom the seed and the founding of a great nation, God's kingdom purposes, would come to be. And so through Abraham, through his son Isaac and his son Jacob, down through their lineage to Judah, to Boaz, through David would come the seed to bring blessing and righteousness to all nations. This is the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is eternal God, God the Son, would take on a human nature, a human nature that would descend from King David. And he would be then the new Adam, to succeed where Adam failed, to succeed where we've all failed. As the perfect sacrifice, being God, being innately holy and righteous, and so as a man living a holy and righteous life, being that perfect sacrifice, he would meet the requirements of righteousness that God would demand of all people. In his life, he would meet that demand of righteousness, keeping God's law perfectly. And in his death, He would satisfy the justice of God, God's righteous requirements for sinner in taking on death and wrath. And he took on that wrath, and he took on that death in his sufficient person as the infinite person, the God-man. He took it in our place who believe. And all who place faith in Jesus Christ are credited then with his holy, righteous life and his law and just-satisfying death. And so by faith, we are declared righteous. We are credited with his righteousness. This is the doctrine of justification by faith that Paul argues for in the book of Romans. That Paul points to Abraham as an example of how God has always worked this way. He has always justified men by faith. And so Lord willing, when we get into the book of Romans, we'll read in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul say, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so as we will be discussing the life of Abraham in this series— we will see something about the faith by which all who have this faith are credited with righteousness. And as we begin this narrative, we'll see the the main human character, and and, and I say it that way, the main human character, because the main character is always God. Uh, Whatever the narrative is, it's it's always telling us about God. And even as you go into other genres and parts of Scripture, uh, the first and foremost thing we learn, no matter where we are in the scriptures, is we learn about God. But the main human character, as we go through this narrative, again, his, his name was first Abram, which means exalted father. And then we'll see his name change to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And so as we, we get into this series and get into the book of Romans, we have to or sorry, the book of Genesis. We have to know something about the book of Genesis, right? You know, as we on Wednesday nights had finished up our study in hermeneutics on how to study the Bible for ourselves, 
uh, we talked about that meaning comes through what? Context, right? Context drives meaning. Context, context, context. And, and so we, we need the context, right? If we're really going to understand this and, and grasp what we're, we're reading. And so Genesis is the first book of the Bible, right? Written by Moses. It's the first book of the Torah or the law. And it's the first of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. It can be broken up into small divisions, uh, each one marked off by genealogies, but it has two main divisions. Uh, The first is from chapter 1 through chapter 11, verse 26, which gives us the origin of everything, right? All creation, this, this kingdom that God has made, this kingdom of which he alone is king and deserving of honor and glory. And we see that he created humanity as his representative rulers in this kingdom. But then sin entered this earthly creation through Adam and Eve. And we see mankind grow and develop, and and we see the nations rise up. And through chapters 3 through 11, we see the themes of judgment and redemption. And then in chapter 11, verse 27, through the end of the book, through chapter 50, we see the origins of the nation of Israel, tied back to Noah's son Shem in the earlier section. We see God set apart Abraham and his descendants to make a people through which God would bless the whole world. We see God would make his covenant with Abraham, and that would include promises of a literal land, that he would give him with borders. It would include innumerable descendants and include blessing. And so Abraham and his descendants, they would be blessed and they would be a blessing. Now, Moses likely would have written this book shortly after he led Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, after God split the waters of the Red Sea, as Israel was camping in the wilderness. And we know from the book of Joshua that Israel began to worship idols there while they were in Egypt. And so with that, and and after 400 years of slavery, Moses then would be writing to explain their God to them so that they would know him, that they would know how they ended up in Egypt and why God rescued them from Egypt, so that they would know that he chose them. And so was going to enter into a covenant relationship with them, giving them the land that he had promised to their forefathers. And that they would understand, again, that he chose them, but that so they would know that he did not choose them because of anything about themselves, but instead that he chose them because of everything about himself. He didn't choose them because of anything about them, because he chose them before they even existed. And so even there, as we see, we learn something about God's choosing. Because we learn in Scripture that God has chosen us. If if we are his, if we are saved, if we're part of the church, it's because God chose us, right? And, And what do we know about that choosing? Ephesians 1 tells us that he chose us before the foundation of the earth. If you are saved, if you are in Christ, if you're part of the church, God chose you before you were a twinkle in your mother's eye before she was a twinkle in her mother's eye, and before the twinkle in her mother's eye, and because he chose you before there was ever even a twinkle that ever existed. 
When God chooses, he doesn't choose because of the one he chose, but he chose because of everything about himself. And that's what we learn here. So as we go through and we see, again, they were a nation that God had chosen and set his love upon. And today we'll begin to see that, that God chose and called Abraham and set him apart. And we'll see the covenant God made with Abraham. As we go through this, we'll, we'll see God's promise for him to have a son, even in his and Sarah's old age. And that child of promise was Isaac. And then Isaac, he would have twin boys that struggled with one another ever since they were in the womb together. And of the two of them, God chose Jacob, though Esau was born first. And from Jacob's sons, God would make the 12 tribes of Israel who would make up the nation of Israel. And we won't get into all of that through this series, as we're going to focus on Abraham. But again, we'll, we'll see when we get into Romans that, that even these things, specifically uh, the choosing of Jacob over Esau, tells us something, again, about God's choosing. But what do we have here? And what we begin this morning? Well, after the flood, all the people of the earth, all the nations came from the sons of Noah. And then you'll, you'll have the, the Tower of Babel, right? Where, where people, uh, in their wickedness, refused to spread out and fill the earth as God had commanded. So God would confuse their languages and force them to spread out. And so being spread out with different languages, we'll see the nations develop from that. And God has determined to reach the nations. He has determined to work in the nations through a nation. This nation that he has chosen and set aside, the nation of Israel. And so we see here in chapter 11, this genealogy there in verses 10 through 25. And that genealogy connects this man named Terah to Noah's son Shem. And then we read this in verse 26. It says, When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, I don't have time right now to get into the reasons why, but we should not read that list of his sons as a birth order. Um, but instead, uh, we should understand that list as being from importance for the narrative. Matter of fact, it's likely that Abram or Abraham was the youngest of them. But as we pick up our passage here for this morning, we see God is raising up a nation from among the nations through the descendants of Shem and Terah through Abram. And so let's read our passage here for this morning. Again, starting in chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, 
his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The day of Terah was 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards Negeb. So if we were walking through Genesis verse by verse, which I do hope that sometime in the not-so-distant future we will do that, uh, but if we were walking through Genesis verse by verse, when we got to this point in, in chapter 11, verse 27, we would see a shift in the text. That this, again, is the beginning of this nation. Uh, we've had a, a global perspective before this in Genesis, going through the narrative, uh, but now it focuses in on this particular group, this, these descendants of Shem. And so we go from the nations founded in a quick breeze of 400 years after Noah and the flood to the founding of this singular nation. And so what do we see here? We see here Terah had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran had a son named Lot, who therefore was Abram's nephew. And so we, we already begin to see some important characters here. Now, Haran, he died in the presence of his father in their hometown, there in Ur of the Chaldeans. And so that tells us that they lived in Babylon. And we learn from Genesis chapter 31 that they knew the true and living God. But we read this in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. It says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. And so what we learn about them is that they were pagans. right? They, they worshipped idol gods. And there's some clues in the text to what kind of pagans they were. Uh, we can specifically think about their names, uh, at least some of the names that we see here. For example, Terah. Uh, his name means moon and is likely named for the moon god Sin. And so the evidence points us to that they were moon worshipers. Now then, Moses really begins to set up the narrative here as he discusses Abram and his living brother Nahor. 
and that they both take wives. Abram's wife was Sarai, which means my princess. And that's all right now that we're told about her. Uh, Later we'll read that she's actually Abram's half-sister, but we'll get into that more later. Nahor's wife, on the other hand, her name was Milcah, which means queen. And she was the daughter of Abram and Nahor's deceased brothers, Haran, who also had another daughter named Iscah. So with that, clearly marrying close relatives was, a, was not an uncommon thing then, right? Uh, and one, uh, you didn't have the Mosaic law put in place yet to forbid it. Plus, again, they were pagans, so they weren't really following the one true God. But also, too, my understanding at least, is that as sin is a progressively degenerating thing on humanity, having its effect even physically on us, uh, that at that point it wouldn't have gotten to the the point where uh, the relationship between close relatives would have the uh, genetic effects that we, we would know today and would know even soon after this. And so the dangers uh, would not have been there at this time. And so again, this was not an, not an uncommon thing to marry close relatives. And, and so we see that here. And so we see then too, though, with the mention of these wives, verse 30 says, Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Nothing's mentioned here about Milcah having children, though later we will see that she does give eight sons to Nahor, and his concubine has other children as well. But Sarai, she's barren, and and the idea of her barrenness actually becomes a key aspect to the narrative as we go through this. So this is a detail that we can't just go over too quickly. Uh, It's important here. Moses says Sarah was barren. And just in case we do miss it, or just in case we really don't understand what he's getting at here, he makes sure to say she had no children. We can't miss this. It's important. It's a key factor to the narrative. Also, too, this would have been difficult. This would have been a hard thing for Sarai, and likely for Abram as well. Uh, This would have been something that would have been seen as a curse in that day. And it would have been something that would have left Sarai feeling helpless, because what could she do about it? If she just wasn't able to have children, if she just couldn't get pregnant, there was nothing she could do. She would feel helpless. And so this would be devastating. But as we go through the narrative, we see that God has his purposes in this. God is is working his will even in her barrenness. And really, it's true that no matter what the devastation that may come into any of our lives, or if there's something that we we really desire and want that we can't have, even a good and right desire, if we can't have it in that moment, or whatever, again, the devastation may be, just like we see in this narrative, God has his purposes and his workings for it. He has a reason. The question comes to, can we trust God and his purposes and reasons. Even we don't know what those reasons are. Can we trust that in all of these things, God is working for his glory, no matter what? And trust that everything God does is right and good. 
Now, again, we go through the narrative, we'll see that eventually in her old age, when her name is not Sarai, but Sarah, which just means princess, that she will have a child, right? We should be careful then to think, not to think that, well, that means that eventually in God's timing, things will work out the way I hope they will. Well, no, that's, that's not what it means. Uh, they were promised something specific from God, and he was going to fulfill that promise. God hasn't made such promises to us. But again, can we trust whatever God is doing? Can we trust that God is working for his glory? And if God is working for his glory, then whatever we go through, whatever comes into our lives or doesn't come into our lives, is worth it. Because God's glory is worth it. The one who created everything that is seen and unseen, the one who rules over it all, his glory is worth it. And that can be hard to grasp and something that we can only grasp by faith. Do we know? It's true. It's worth it. God's glory is worth it, and his workings, his purposes are always right and good. Then as we we continue here, we read that Terah took Abram and Sarai, and he, he took his grandson Lot, since Lot's father Haran died. And he took them, and they went from Ur to head to Canaan. But they didn't make it all the way to Canaan. They they stopped and settled in Haran. And Moses doesn't tell us why. He doesn't tell us why they they left Ur to begin with. But I think, though, we, we may have some clues. Remember, as we've been going over the book of Acts in Sunday school, and we read about Stephen. When Stephen, for preaching the name of Christ, was dragged before the Sanhedrin uh, with these bogus charges of blasphemy. And in his defense, he goes through Israel's history, their biblical history, and he begins by saying this, as we saw in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. It says, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. And so while they were there in Ur, as these pagan moon worshipers, Stephen says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And so this can give us some explanation, some understanding of why they would have picked up from Ur and started heading toward Canaan, even even though they didn't make it all the way to Canaan. There's also something I think we can learn from this as well. Again, they're there in Ur as these pagan moon worshipers. And Stephen says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. There's something we learn that's true about the faith of Abraham. Something that's true about all of us who have faith. That we should see here. That no matter how you came to faith, no matter what your testimony is, whether you heard the gospel from someone the first time and in that instance you were saved, or whether you had to hear the gospel over and over again, two, three, four, five times before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, in any case, it doesn't really make a difference. The truth of the matter is, in your faith, in your salvation, it was initiated by 
God. As we see here with Abraham, these pagan worshipers there in Ur, that Stephen says the God of glory appeared. God initiated this saving faith, just as he does for us. Now, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We're dead. We're, we're children of wrath. And what can we do if we're, we're spiritually dead? Because what can a dead person do? Nothing. Uh, we can't respond to spiritual stimuli. We're dead. And then two, again, when we get into the book of Romans, Lord willing, we'll see there in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that there is none who seek God, no, not one. No one sees God as glorious. No one sees him as beautiful. No one sees him as, as something that should be sought after. No one seeks God. You didn't seek God in of yourself. You didn't initiate that. I didn't either. No one seeks God. And therefore, apart from God's saving grace, no one would seek him. Apart from God initiating faith, no one would be saved. Faith is something God initiates, that God does. This is his work. And throughout our study here of Abraham, it'll be clear. It'll be clear that true saving faith is going from disbelief to true belief in the one true God. From believing the wrong things to believing the, the right things. This is what, what faith is. And so as we see here again, God appeared to Abram even before they left Ur. And if Abram went to his father Terah and explained, hey, this God of glory appeared to me and said we got to go, or whatever it may have been that he persuaded his father, all we know from what Moses says here is that Terah decided they were going to go. And so they left Ur and headed toward Canaan, which to get to Canaan from Ur, they would have to pass through a wilderness, which they probably wouldn't survive. And so to get there, they would have to follow the Euphrates River northwest until it brought them over Canaan so that they would then turn and go south down into Canaan. But apparently at some point, they, they made a more north turn to go to Han Haran, and they stayed there and, and settled there. Now you might be saying, well, they, they settled there in Haran. That, that, that's the same name as as one of Terah's sons, isn't it? That's, that's Abram's brother who died, Haran, right? Right, and we said that, that their names may give us some clues to the fact that they were moon worshipers. Um, whether Moses is naming the name of Haran because that's what it was called at the time that he was writing, and so he wanted to make sure the people, the Israelites he's writing to, understood where he was talking about, which was not an uncommon thing. Or two of this points to the fact that this is actually where the family originated from, and so that they took uh, a name from there. And what we see, too, is that Haran was a hub for moon worshipers. <clears throat> and so that is likely, too, why Terah would want to stay there, where he didn't really care to go any further. And so he doesn't. He stays there in, in Haran. And what we read there is that Terah died there in Haran. 
at 205 years old. And so at this point then, the focus shifts from Terah's family to his one son, Abram. And that brings us then to chapter 12. And it's here we see the initial offer of God's covenant with Abraham. We see that in verses 1 through 3. Now, before we get into that, though, there's some discussion about when Abram was actually saved. There's some discussion about when did he place faith in Yahweh. It's not until chapter 15, when he's in Canaan, that we read he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. But is that still, is that, is that only when it happened there? That is when God enters into a covenant relationship with him, clearly. But do we not see him place faith in Yahweh until then? Now, even as we read here that the Lord appeared to him and spoke to him there in chapter 12, the Lord commanded him to go and leave Haran. And the question again, did he trust the Lord? I mean, he, he left. Did he, did he trust the Lord? Or, or was he, he trusting God, but he was still also worshiping the moon god as well? Is that, is that what it was that we see here? Some argue the text really is not exactly clear. Uh, but I, I think, and, and many argue this too, that, that there's indications of this faith, uh, genuine faith, as this passage plays out. Also, too, I think we have another clue from another New Testament author, from the author of the book of Hebrews. That as he, he points to this moment in chapter 12 as, as an example of Abraham's faith. There was, it says, By faith Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as his inheritance. And he went, not knowing where he was going. And so that, that's what we see here in, in chapter 12. <clears throat> and it goes on there, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So it seems pretty clear Abram was trusting in the one true God as seen by his obedience. That he went. And isn't that how faith works? That if we truly believe, then by faith we will obey, right? We do not continue in our rebellion, but our faith gets worked out in what we do. No one is justified before God by what they do, but by faith. But if we truly believe, if we have faith, it will be seen in what we do, right? The New Testament author James, our, our Lord's half-brother, tells us that faith without works is no faith at all. It's, it's a dead faith. And he too points to Abraham, though he gives another example of what Abraham does, but he points to Abraham as that example. That faith gets worked out. It produces obedience in our lives. So, now as, as chapter 11 leaves off with Terah's death, we see here in chapter 12, the Lord speaks to Abram. We see there in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So again, to listen to God's call, Abram would have to leave all that was familiar to him. 
He'd have to leave what was security for him. His family, his father's home, the land that his father was in, his house. To go to a place he doesn't really know. And God tells him, though, what he intends to do there. We see that in verses 2 through 3. He says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so really, what's before Abraham is Is he going to listen to God and trust God and so go where God tells him or is he going to hold on to the securities that he already has? That's what's before him. Is he going to go where he doesn't know, leave behind his his family, leave behind his father's land and his home? Or is he going to hold on to those securities? And really, from a human perspective, it's a no-brainer, right? Right? And so what does Abram do? Well, clearly, we've already said he goes, right? Would you and I go? <laughs> Full confession, I have a tendency to hold on to my, the things that make me feel secure, right? And it's difficult to, to let those things go and trust God in whatever the situation is. But again, this is why the author of Hebrews points to Abram as an example of faith. He goes. Verse 4 says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him. The one who is not going to trust what seems to be the the more secure option, the one who is not going to to make the, the seemingly safe choice, is the one who trusts God. This is Abram's faith in action. Without faith, without trusting God, without believing God, Abram would never obey God. But faith causes obedience. We remain in our sin, following and continuing in our old, our old lives, when we don't trust God. But faith causes us to leave behind that which is hard to let go of. It causes us to let go of our securities and make God our security instead. And so we leave behind our our old sin, and we leave behind our old idols, all the things that we were trusting in in the place of God. And so faith makes us leave behind our old life. On this, John Walton says this about Abram. He says, The gods were portrayed respectively, as territorial deities or as patron deities. Thus, when Abram is asked to put his land and his family behind him, the request entails walking away from any territorial or patron gods. So again, basically, he had to turn away from his old life in order to trust and follow God. And again, that's what faith does. We turn from our old life of sin and idolatry. When we hear the gospel, we turn to Jesus Christ alone to save us. This is why repentance and faith are really just two sides of the same coin. 
True faith brings about a change, a turning from our old life. And so as God has chosen Abram and called Abram, he made his promise, he expressed his intent to Abram to make him into a great nation and bless him and make him a blessing. And these promises are foundational. They're so important. As we look over these promises to Abram, the first thing that should really jump out at us is the idea of blessing. God was going to bless Abram which no doubt included making him into a great nation. Remember, God's purposes has been for the nations, right? But God would work for the nations through a singular nation. That has been his plan. And God would give descendants to Abram to make him into a great nation. And God was going to make a great name for Abram. You know, back at the Tower of Babel, we see the wicked, prideful men that were there that refused to spread out and fill the earth. Uh, they wanted to stay there and, and make a name for themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And that's why they built that tower, that ziggurat. But God would dash their pride by confusing their languages. When they wanted to make a name for themselves, here, Abraham's going to have a name but he's not going to make it for himself. God says, I will make your name great. This is what God was going to do for Abram. And so God was going to bless him. And as we think about the blessing, as you go through Genesis and see all that this blessing was about, we, we see that God would bless him, and that would include physical blessings, physical riches and and material things. It would include prominence and progeny, as well as spiritual blessing, which undoubtedly then has to include the fact that God would justify Abram by faith. Right? If we understand the blessing that that is, clearly we have to include this in how God was going to bless Abraham, because it is such a blessing. And if you sit here and you know that in yourself there is no righteousness of your own, that you're not a good person, that in of yourself you're a sinner who has broken God's law and has earned nothing before God but his judgment and wrath, if you sit here and know that and yet you can say that you have been credited with righteousness, you know what a blessing that is. You get it. And you know, as, as Paul in Romans, again, is, is pointing to Abraham, to show that, that God has always worked this way. God has always justified people by faith. Right alongside Abraham, he also points to David because he references Psalm 32. And there in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This one in whose spirit there is no deceit, it's not because he's deceitless, especially if you know David's story, right? But it's because the Lord has not counted his iniquity against him, but instead has credited him with righteousness. Right? That, that's Paul's point when he points to this in Romans. 
And David says, that man is blessed. What a blessing that is to have our sins forgiven and to stand before the holy God as righteous in his sight. We truly are blessed if, if that is us. And if that is us, it is by faith that we are righteous. See, the Old Testament saints, uh, they were saved just like we are. Uh, the only difference is uh, they looked ahead to Messiah's coming and what he would do, where we look back on the fact that Christ has come and what he has done. But it is by faith, because of God's grace. Now, too, as God's chosen, God secures Abram. And he will bless with such a wonderful blessing those who bless Abram and will dreadfully curse to the same degree those who would have disdain or dishonor him or who would curse him. And so he secures Abram in this way. We should also note that God doesn't just bless Abram as an end in itself. God doesn't just uh, do all of this for Abram's sake. But it's clear that he blesses Abram so that Abram could be a blessing. And really, that's true of all of God's blessings, right? Uh, whatever God gives any one of us, whatever material things, whatever uh, blessings and opportunities, whatever spiritual blessings that God gives us, uh, our, our spiritual gifts, uh, the church that we're in, that we are a body together with one another, that we are blessed to be together, uh, none of that is is for the, their own ends. But it's so that God provides for us to make us a blessing to others, that we would serve and use the things that he's given us for others. And so too, God was going to bless Abram in order to make him a blessing. And there would be an ultimate blessing as well as we, we see this here. As God tells him there at the end of verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through Abram would come a blessing beyond Abram and beyond his family, beyond that great nation Israel. But a blessing that would come to all the families of the earth without distinction. And ultimately, that blessing would be found in Abram's greatest son, in Abram's greatest descendant when out of the nation of Israel, Messiah would be born. And he would come and offer himself as that sacrifice and bring righteousness and blessing by his life, death, and resurrection. By his gospel being proclaimed, there would be unspeakable blessing. And one day he's coming again. And one day he's going to establish his kingdom on this earth and reign over all the earth from his father David's throne. And all of the nations will come to him and be blessed. There is this great blessing to all the earth. And so Abram had to go where God was calling him to go. These promises would be tied to the land there in Canaan, and, and really uh, through the rest of the Old Testament, that's true. And as we think of these promises, you can boil them down to these three things, land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. That's God's promise to Abram. And so again, Abram goes. 
And we see here that he was 75 years old when he left Haran. And he took Sarai and Lot, which could imply that he adopted Lot as his own. And he took all that they had and set out for Canaan. And we see he came into the land at the time the Canaanites were in the land. And verse 7 says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And building this altar to the Lord, here is an open profession of faith by Abram. That he was there and worshiping the one true God. And actually, we see him there move throughout the land. And again, he builds an altar to the Lord. Because Abram believed God. He believed God's promises. That here in this land, this is where those promises would be fulfilled. He believed. And all of this would be so crucial to the original audience. Even as Moses is writing this about 700 years after Abram, after having led that great nation that would come from him out of slavery in Egypt, uh, for that people coming out of Egypt, this all would be so crucial for them to understand. Uh, These ideas of land, seed, and blessing, and faith. It's crucial for where they were going for who they were, for why they were. And this is so important that we'd have to to come to grips and, and understand, that they would have to understand and come to grips with the fact that God chose them. And so these promises and the idea of faith is so crucial for the founding of this nation. And so much so that Abner Chow would say this. He says, if you don't get this, you, don't, you do not understand God's purpose for Israel. You don't understand the existence of Israel and its role, and you don't understand the rest of the Bible. And he's right. He's right. This is so crucial and so important to grasp and understand. This idea of God's promises of land, seed, and blessing. And the idea of faith. And so as we go through this series... Uh, we're going to endeavor to understand all the more God's promises here to Abraham and the covenant he makes with him. And we're going to endeavor all the more to understand faith. Faith by which all who believe are credited with righteousness. And so we're going to grow here. Uh, The game plan is to grow in our understanding of this faith and what God has called us to as we prepare then to to dive into the book of Romans and learn all the more about the doctrine of justification. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.